Good morning. Good to see everybody at Gospel of Grace. I want to welcome everyone here. We'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time to come together and learn your word. We do pray as we look at the errors and falsehoods of Marxism that we'd be better equipped to give an answer for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect to all who ask. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that we'd be salt and light in our culture, that we'd show the contrast between the gospel and the evil, and we would be given opportunity to proclaim your gospel in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin, I want to remind you that this is part two or three, I think. <laughs> I think it's part two. And I want to do a little review of where we were. My central thesis on this attempt to destroy Israel, and that's the title of this whole message, is that I believe that Satan and the demonic realm use false religions. And I think that's uh, exegetically supportable. We did that last time. And I do believe that Marxism is a false religion, that central thesis is to take from the haves, give to the have-nots, and that the attack on the have-nots, or the haves rather, by the have-nots is being used to attack Israel, and for that matter, the United States. So I'll be proving that Marxism is used by Satan to attack Israel, because Israel is deemed by the Marxists to be the oppressor, and those in the Mideast around them are deemed to be the oppressed. And so because they have that worldview, the Marxists don't think morally as you and I do. They don't think, well, who started a battle, who started the war? They don't think like that. They merely see everything through the prism of the oppressed and the oppressor. As soon as you are labeled the oppressor, there is nothing you can do short of being destroyed to get off of that, to, to have that mantra lifted. And so that's what I'll be showing you. So today I want to just reiterate where we had come from last time. And that is recall that in the last days, which we're living in now, at some point the Lord is going to return in the rapture. The 70th week of Daniel will ensue. And at the end of that seven years, God is going to allow the nations to gather against Jerusalem for a final battle in which he's going to intervene. And so I want to read that again, Joel 3, 1 through 3. Notice it says, I'll pull up my pointer, for behold in those days and at that time. Now recall, that has to do with the last days. That's the time period. Why? Because Joel 3 is connected directly to the end of Joel 2. Joel 2 at the end, 228 through 32, was cited by the apostle Peter at Pentecost. And when Peter cited it in Acts 2.17, he said, and in the last days. So we know from an authoritative apostle who speaks for Christ that Joel 3 is linked to the last days. So he says, For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Stop there for just a moment. Notice what's going to happen. There's going to be a restoration. Do post-millennialists believe in a restoration of Israel brought about by Christ? No. What about amillennialists? No. How about preterists? Nope. So is that biblical? Well, I don't think so. <laughs> That's the point. The Lord says, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people in my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Notice the central promise here in red is that he's going to enter into the judgment with those nations that have attacked his heritage, Israel. 
Recall back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 through 10, that there's one nation that belongs to Yahweh as his heritage, and that, of course, is Israel. All the other nations are given over to the demonic realm, but there's one nation that belongs to Yahweh, and that is Israel. At the end, all the nations are going to come against Israel, and the Lord is going to judge those nations for it. What we see in the meantime is an, an attempt, I believe, to make God a liar by attempting to wipe out Israel, and therefore the nations succeed and not Israel. Therefore, God is a liar. That's ultimately what the battle is about. Now, the way Marxism plays into this is you have many people that grow up now in our culture and around the world who, for them, Marxism is the religion, and they see everything through the prism of the oppressor versus the oppressed. And again, through Marxist dogma, Israel is forever the oppressor along with the United States because we are capitalist nations. At the end of the day, Satan doesn't care why you attack Israel. He just wants you to attack Israel. He doesn't care why you don't believe in Jesus Christ. He just doesn't want you to believe in Jesus Christ. So if you're an atheist, you don't believe in Jesus. If you're a Buddhist, you don't believe in Jesus. If you're a Marxist, you don't believe in Jesus. Because before Karl Marx, thou shall have no other gods. And so at the end of the day, I'm just showing that Marxism is indeed a religion, and it is being used, I believe, by the demonic realm. And I'll show you some further evidence of that that I think it becomes very obvious. Um, let me just cut to the chase. Marxism has murdered more human beings on the planet than any other religion, period. Bar none. And, that, and by the way, in fact, what they did in the 20th century alone, they murdered more people than any other false religion has in the history of humanity. Okay, so yes, Marxism is a big problem, and it is indeed a false religion. The reason I think every Christian should care about the treatment of Israel is not because you and I are somehow Zionist in the sense where we just politically want to take over the world, but what we believe is that when the Messiah returns and establishes his kingdom, it will be in Israel. And so the kingdom that's coming to Israel is indeed our kingdom. The moment we believed in Jesus Christ, we were grafted into the promises and the persecutions. And so this kingdom is ours, and I made that case last time out of Romans eleven seventeen. Now, before I read this to you, I want you to recall that there's four different imageries in the olive tree metaphor that Paul uses. And I want to go through those again. Let me read them off to you. First of all, in this olive tree metaphor, you have the cultivated, that is the cared for olive tree. And the idea of a cared for or cultivated olive tree means it's Yahweh's. Yahweh is seen throughout the book of Isaiah as the vine dresser. And so he is the one who takes care of the tree. So Yahweh is the one who's taking care of the cultivated olive tree, which is Israel. Second image in the four of the metaphor is that you have wild a wild olive tree or wild olive shoot. Those are the Gentiles. And the idea is that the Gentiles who are a wild olive tree or wild olive shoot are being grafted in to the one that God is taking care of, the cultivated olive tree. That's part of the imagery. Third part of the imagery is you have broken off natural branches. What are the broken off natural branches? Well, those are individual Israelites who are not partakers of the cultivated olive tree because they rejected the Messiah. They were never part of the elect, as Paul argues earlier 
in Romans chapter 9, and for that matter, in Romans 11 as well. Okay? The fourth image of this metaphor is the nourishing root of the naturally cultivated olive tree. What is the nourishing root? There's a lot of debate about this, but I think the nourishing root is clearly the patriarchs and the promises. The promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the root of the cultivated olive tree. And the image that Paul delivers here in Romans 11 is that the moment you believed in Jesus Christ, you, the foreign branches as Gentiles, the wild olive shoot or olive tree, were grafted in to the cultivated tree, olive tree, that is the one God is taking care of, Israel, and you became a partaker of the root, meaning the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because you have the same faith that they did. Remember, Jesus himself said in John 8:56, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. The Jews responded by saying, you're not yet 50 years old, and yet you claim to have seen Abraham. What does Jesus say in John 8, 58? Before Abraham was, I am. Amen. He declares his deity. So the point is, Abraham believed in Christ. He looked forward to the cross. You and I believe in Christ. We look back to the cross. But whether you look forward to the cross or you look back to the cross, whether you look forward to the Messiah or look back to the Messiah, it's one Savior, it's one act of redemption, and it's the same saving faith that justifies every single person that's going to be a partaker in this glorious kingdom. Yes, Eric. Yeah, I just it's the Abrahamic covenant. It's all of the it's all of the eternal covenants that we've been grafted into. The mosaic Amen. and I know you know this. I just want to make sure we're all Amen. clear. The mosaic covenant has been nullified. That was a yes. that was a conditional covenant just to bring people, you know, uh, so people who are Christians, we've been grafted into all of those covenants. A lot of times yes. Christians will quote Mosaic law is if we have to live by it, and that's gone. That's right. right. Amen. Okay. It's been nullified, yeah. and absolutely it's been repudiated or rejected as a saving covenant. It cannot justify us. And one of the points, you're so right, Eric, at the end of Romans 3, 19 through 21, Paul makes the point that the Mosaic law shuts the mouth of every man. And what's interesting about that statement that Paul makes is we might ask ourselves, wait a minute, how would the Mosaic law shut the mouth of Gentiles being that Gentiles were never, never under the Mosaic law. There's an implied greater to lesser argument that Paul is dealing with. What he shows you throughout Romans in the first three chapters is that if the greater Jews could not bring about righteousness through the Mosaic law, how much less are the Gentiles who are far off going to bring about righteousness from some other law or for that matter, the Mosaic Law. So in that sense, Israel is like another Adam. They're another corporate entity that God looks to to say, hey, can there be righteousness through the law? And obviously he knows, but he shows us for all time that no, it cannot happen. Why? Because of the sinfulness of the human heart. Think about Paul asked the question in Romans 3.1, what advantage is there in being a Jew? He says, there's one in every way, for they were given the very oracles of God. So yes, the Jews had the advantage. They had the patriarchs. They had the promises. They had the covenants. They had the scriptures. And yet, even though they had those things, they could not, at any one of them, all the millions that ever lived, not one Israelite could ever bring about righteousness through obeying the Mosaic law. 
And so that's how it shuts the mouth of all of us Gentiles. We're not going to do any better. That's Paul's argument. And so the idea then is, as Eric is saying, the Mosaic Law just simply showed us that we need a savior. We need someone who could do it for us. Absolutely. Yes, Brian. Uh, just to re reiterate something you said a few weeks ago was not only are we grafted in and uh, get the, uh, the promises that were promised uh, to Israel, yes. we're also uh, grafted in for the persecution as Amen. well. It's, yes, it's a package deal. You're so right. Yes, Bob. You had asked me to, I told you, mentioned something to you after last week, and you asked me to bring it up. Oh, yes, yeah. And it was from Deuteronomy 17. 17, yes, thank you. And you're talking about Marxism and the social gospel and how people right. look at things. The idea of a constitution that is binding even on the king yeah. is found in Deuteronomy. Mm. Okay, and I, I don't know how many people know about this, but if you look at Deuteronomy 17, and if you look at verses 14 to the end, I had a debate with my, one of my grandsons who's uh, in his late 20s, and he went to Winona State, and I debated all the way bringing him back from college when he graduated. He'd been taught all this nonsense by the professors there. And... Um, when he came back with the idea that Plato or the Greeks invented Western civilization, right. and I said, no, Moses did. If you want to just give a human face to it, yeah. I believe it came from God. But and the proof of that is found here, Deuteronomy 17, starting verse 14. And I gotta, I'll read quickly. When you enter the land, the Lord, it's Yahweh, your God is giving you, take possession of it, live in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. Remember, originally that was going to be a problem. Yeah. So, but he's going to mitigate it. Not that he didn't intend that there would be a king eventually. You are to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. Appoint, appoint a king from your brothers. You're not to set a foreigner over or one who's not of your people. However, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. Remember, they eventually wanted to do that. Um, for the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself, so his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very, many large amounts of silver and gold for himself. When he is seated on his royal throne, he, th this is the key. He is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It is to remain with him, and he is to read from it all of the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of this instruction, and to do these statutes, then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. He will not turn from the command to the right or the left, and he and his sons will continue ruling for many years. So here you have Amen. revealed, written law, having authority over the king. Yes. A restraint on pride, it restraint on power, and in a sense, the grounding of a constitutional republic. Hmm. Um, and that's in Deuteronomy 17. So yes. in my debate, my, by the way, my grandson is brilliant. Yeah. 
So he's a worthy debate partner. Um, he's, I said, no, Deuteronomy 17 comes way before Plato That's right. or Socrates or what we would consider the West coming from Rome. This is uh, revealed by God. Amen. Thank you so much, Bob. And what's so critical about that is that's what's being jettisoned by the Marxist left. They see the Judeo-Christian establishment of Western civilization and it's being jettisoned. You and I are not only seeing problems in the United States, we're seeing really in some sense the destruction of the Western world, the repudiation of what Bob decided, the Judeo-Christian ethic for the basis of governance, the idea that no man's above the law, the idea that there's a God or a creator that our rights ultimately come from, those ideas are being jettisoned for atheistic Marxism by the ruling class. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, one of the pinnacles in human history is the Magna Carta, which is around the 1500s, right? Yes. Magna Carta, before then, the king could kill you if he just decided to. He doesn't like you, so you're dead. The Magna Carta gave people rights and said, no, king, you can't just go murder anybody that you want. It gave a little bit of freedom to the people, and I think that's what the United States of America kind of perpetuated, is power to the people that are allowed to have their personal freedoms. That's right. And, and before then, there was no freedom. There was absolutely, king can kill anybody and do whatever he wants. That's right. So that would do what, what Bob is saying, what the scriptures are saying. That, Amen. Well hey, said. king, you're under the constraints of God. Amen. You, well said. Yeah. Exactly right. Yes, Eric. Everybody's on to this stuff here. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was taking a lot of classes years ago from a, a gentleman who was a Hebrew scholar, and yeah. I remember distinctly, too, this passage an application yeah. that we would take is multiplying horses would be, you know, that government, this is an application that, that I think is valid. Yeah. Multiply horses would be, you know, multiply power. In other words, God here is saying you do not want your government to have, you know, huge amount of power, military yeah. might, you know, gathering all kinds of military might. Multiplying wives would be lots of alliances, lots of foreign uh, alliances. Uh, we think about this in our day now, governments yeah. that uh, that just amass enormous amounts of military power. They get involved in all kinds of alliances, you know, which ultimately will lead to a, an alliance for the, of the whole world. And then yeah. multiply gold, governments just dominating and taking all of the tax money, taking all the wealth, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, yeah. I'm going to have to debate that. Okay. America is not Israel. No, yeah, absolutely right. not. So I am talking about uh, why there's persecution against Christians yes. grounded in hatred of Israel. Yeah. Because we have the same ideas and we're grafted in. Yeah, Western civilization was given through Moses. All right? We believe in that. America is a pagan nation. Yeah. But I think God has always been a pagan nation because there's only one covenant nation, and that's Israel. Right now, they're in rebellion. Yeah. Okay, right. so we're not, this doesn't mean we have to be against the U.S. having a military. Right. I, I, I'm not claiming that we have a covenant with God, but this is, a, this is a directive from God that I think that we can learn from. That's, that's the main point, yeah, not the, a covenant. The, the point is, if we have revealed law that's moral and applicable to every single person, we have hope for forgiveness of sins, moral guidance, civilization, 
how we get along with each other, how we treat people who aren't like us, because they had rules about that. They couldn't oppress people who showed up just because they weren't Jewish. Um, and so the hatred is coming toward Christians yes. yeah, amen. because we're grafted into this. Exactly right. And this is the foundation. So when I debated my grandson, I wasn't, uh, and I did debate against why Marxism always fails and so on and why it's not in keeping with human beings. Right. But this is the groundwork. That's right. And if we think it came from the Greeks or the Romans, we're not giving credit. That's right. And we won't be persecuted because we believe with some, we, we agree with a Greek philosopher. That's right. They're not going to persecute you for that. Yeah. Well, and uh, the thing that is bringing disrepute to Christians is that we're tacitly making a claim that we are Israel. That's right. And that we have replaced Israel, that the millennium is going to come to America, exactly. which is baked into the cookie. Yes. The whole 19th century in America was a post-millennial century. Right. The millennium is going to come to America. And so American Christians are pushing Israel out. Yeah. And therefore, they're putting themselves in a position that's bringing needless disrepute to the gospel. The gospel isn't the millennium comes to America. That's right. Finney taught that, and I would say most Christians in America have their roots in Finney. That's right. And uh, Finney said if we worked harder, we would have the millennium already here in America. Yeah. And that was across the board the culture of America in the 19th century. Dr. Travis had a great lecture on that. Yeah. If you look at the societies, the benevolent uh, empire, that's what they call it, the benevolent empire. Yeah. We're going to wipe out every problem. The, the pinnacle of the whole thing was um, prohibition. That was their goal. It took a 100 years to get to it, where they were going beyond even... Um, biblical law, yeah. okay? And you still see it when you look at all these things that are on Fox News, raising money, some poor dog has got a chain on his neck. Uh, and they, they show all these pathetic yeah. pictures, of, oh, give money, give money. That's America as the benevolent empire. Yeah. We're not, we don't need a millennium. The millennium doesn't come until we have the king here. Exactly. So yeah. uh, I would just warn us not to get hooked up with... Uh, yeah, we don't have to adopt the Mosaic Covenant as Americans. That's not the point. I think maybe the wider point you were making, Eric, is that in Marxism, the king becomes the ultimate authority. Right. It's the one who has the military, has the might. In the Judeo-Christian ethic, what you see is that there's a higher authority above the king. The king isn't uberalis above all. It's not the state. There's a higher authority. There are times where we have to obey God rather than men. Right. That is not the way it is in atheistic Marxism because there is no God. And so it's the state uber allis. And so I think maybe that was the point that you were driving at. But yeah, well said, Bob. We are not the... And I'm going to get into that right now, in fact. Let's read Romans 11:17, where it says, but if some of the branches were broken off... Now remember, the bro broken off branches are the natural Israelites. They're ethnic Israelites... They were broken off, and you, here's the Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, so that's the second imagery, right? You were grafted in 
among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Olive tree. So if we're sharing in the nourishing root, what's the nourishing root? The patriarchs and the promises. Not because, as Bob is saying, because we establish our own millennial kingdom, but because we have the same faith and the forgiveness of sins that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have. And so that when the Messiah returns and he establishes this kingdom in Israel, that's our kingdom as well. So the issue then is I see the attack on Israel as a foundational issue. I mentioned from Romans eleven fifteen that the timing of the resurrection is connected to the restoration of Israel. So if you lose the restoration of Israel, why do you not lose the resurrection? Where do we see that? Well, Romans eleven fifteen it says, For if there, that's Israel's rejection, meant the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance, this is them being brought back in, what will it mean but life from the dead? Certainly, that's a reference to the resurrection. That's what's being referred to there. And so the idea is, think about no matter what position you have on the rapture, I don't care if you're pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, what we're all wrestling with is that last seven years. We all know that the rapture is connected, and therefore the resurrection, to the 70th week of Daniel. When is Israel going to be reestablished in the 70th week of Daniel? So what I'm showing you is it's all over the Bible. Once we see it, that, wait a minute, you lose Israel and its restoration, then you lose the resurrection. Now it's a gospel issue. That's what I'm trying to show is that God's promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob aren't something that we can say, well, you may believe it or you may not believe it. No. If God made a promise, it's incumbent upon us to believe it. Amen. And it's the amillennialist and it's the postmillennialist that have attacked those promises, and I'll show you why. Yes, Linda. So as you talk about the different views with the pre-trib and all that, and yes. then I don't know if many of you know who, and I can never say his name very well, Eric Metaxas? Yes. And have you heard what he said not too long ago? I, I didn't hear what he said, no. He called the pre-trib rapture demonic from the yeah. pits of hell. Yeah. And then finally... That wouldn't surprise me. I think he's post-millennial. Well, and he, and he yeah. believes in the Dominion Now kingdom. Yes. Now, you know, and I've, I'd heard of Dominion Now kingdom, you yeah. know, but I had... And anyway, it also got explained to us when we were listening to someone talk about this. I had not thought out that it also then removes the wrath of God, you know, and so, and I lost my train of thought where I was going with Yeah, no, I agree. Oh, a form of, like, Marxism. Like, they're building utopia. It's the same. Exactly. And I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> exactly right, Linda. So whether you have the Marxist, see, what the false religions do is they're going to bring a kingdom, but it's a kingdom without Christ. Right. And it's by human effort. It's by works, not by grace. What pre-millennialism, not, not pre-trib, again, you can have a different view on the rapture, but the issue with post-millennialism is they're going to Christianize the planet. Through their works, they're going to bring a kingdom. And we're saying, Bob and I are saying, and I know many of you are saying, well, wait a minute, what's the difference if you're Eric Metaxas teaching that humans bring about a kingdom, post-millennialism, or you're a Marxist saying that human beings bring about a kingdom? At the end of the day, it's still air. Exactly right. That... It is shocking. It is, it is. And that's why eschatology matters. And that's why we want to get it right. Again, we can divide, or I shouldn't say divide, we can differ over the timing of the rapture. 
But when it comes to pre-millennial, amillennial, and post-millennial, those are things where we've got to get that down. And what I want to do is turn to some of these things. Again, I've made the statement time and time again that if you're amillennial, you believe you are Israel. If you're post-millennial, you have to create Israel. But if you're pre-millennial, you're waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ who's going to restore Israel. Those are huge differences. Yeah, so that's the issue, I think. So are you, are, do you think you're Israel? You're deceived. If you're trying to create Israel, you're deceived. If you're waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to return, you are right. You're right. Okay, so let's look at some evidence. What I want you to do is turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation 20, verse 4. Revelation 20, verse 4. And what I'm going to do is show you a passage that's really impossible, in my opinion, to read correctly if you're an amillennialist. Again, what does an amillennialist believe? Well, they believe that you and I are now reigning in the kingdom. And I'll show you how they divide over it. There's divisions among amillennialists. Some believe that we are reigning right now upon the earth. Uh, what I do when I debate them is right away I'll bring up various tragedies and things that occur. Obviously, as you look out the window, I'm appealing to general revelation. And I don't even mean to bring this up because it seems so macabre, if that's the term. But remember, how many months ago was it that you had this mass shooter who went into a school to shoot up Christian school children in, was it Tennessee? Yeah. It was horrific. Does that sound like we're ruling and reigning? Does that sound like Christ is on the throne? Does that sound like the swords are beaten to plowshares and the spears into printing hooks and no longer shall the nations learn war? When you look out at the Middle East, does it look like the nations are no longer learning war? Well, of course not. So then what the other amillennialists do, because they realize it's a dumb argument to say that we're ruling and reigning upon the earth, is they'll say the promise is actually to rule and reign in heaven right now for Christians who die. What I'm going to show you is that is an impossible reading of Revelation 20, verse 4. Why? Well, notice here in Revelation 20, verse 4, and by the way, before we read this, I apologize. Can we have Brian read Revelation 5.10? I want you to hear Revelation 5.10. And before you read this, let me set the stage because I want you to see the connection between Revelation 5.10 and Revelation 20, verse 4. And Revelation 5.10, recall the structure of Revelation. Revelation 4 and 5 is a throne room. And in the throne room, Jesus Christ is the one who is worthy of breaking the seals. The book that he opens, think of it as a title deed to the earth. He owns it. He's the great redeemer, the great Goel. And he's purchased his people by his blood, and he owns it all. He's the creator, he's the great redeemer, and it's his. So from the throne room, he breaks the seals. You have seven seals, they break out to seven trumpets. The seven trumpets break out to seven bowls. And Jesus Christ returns upon the earth to set up his millennial kingdom. So what you see from the throne room is the idea that all of the judgments come from the hands of the Messiah even the seal judgments. So in Revelation 5.10, you actually have these elders, which I believe are actually angelic beings. I do not believe that these are human elders. And these angels are singing this song, and in 5.10, listen to what the promise is. This is so important. Bob is showing us how to be good readers in Acts, Luke Acts. This is how we want to be a good reader in the book of Revelation. Read Revelation 5.10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Stop there. Beautiful. Thank you, Brian. Who is the they? It's believers. 
And it says, they shall reign. There'll be a kingdom of priests and they shall reign. Where? Upon the earth. Notice the verb reign is basuluo. The next time that that term reign, remember what's the promise from the throne room? We as believers will reign upon the earth. The next time that term reign, basuluo, is used for believers, and again, I'm talking for believers, the next time the term reigned, basuluo is used, is Revelation 20, verse 4. Let's read Revelation 20, verse 4. Now, these are the people after the 70th week who have not taken upon themselves the mark of the beast. So, John here is focusing on how are they going to enter into the kingdom in light of the fact that they came to faith in the 70th week and they were murdered. Well, we find out they're not going to be left out. He says, then I saw thrones and they sat on them. This is for believers. And judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. Now, let's just stop there. Let's, does everyone see where it says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus? What does it mean that they have a testimony of Jesus? It means they're believers. That's why they're killed. Why is this important? Because later in the verse, we see they came to life. I'll read that in just a moment. The amillennialist says, who believes we're reigning in heaven, that that coming to life in this verse, Revelation 20, verse 4, is coming to faith in Jesus. What's the problem with that? The problem with it is that's why the people were killed in the first place that the verse is talking about. The reason they died is because they had faith in Jesus. So their coming to life can't be them coming to faith in Jesus. That's why they were killed in the first place. This isn't difficult. Right. So the point is, they notice, let's keep reading then. It says they did not receive the mark of the forehead on their hand. They didn't receive the mark of the beast. Why? Because they're really believers. So they were put to death. That's the point. That happens in the 70th week. What happens to them, it says, and they came to life. Stop there. If they were beheaded because of their faith in Jesus, can their coming to faith, excuse me, can their coming to life mean they're coming to faith in Jesus? No. That's why they were beheaded. So the coming to life has to be a physical resurrection. In fact, he will say that in the very next verse. This is the first resurrection. He goes on to say, blessed is he who is part of the first resurrection, for the second death has no power over them. So notice it says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Does everyone see the term reigned? That's the verb basuluo. When's the last time we saw basuluo used for believers? It was Revelation 5.10 that Brian read, and where will we reign? Upon the earth. So as the good reader of the book of Revelation, where am I expecting us to reign? Well, upon the earth. That's what the text is saying. So why is the amillennialist who claim, claims that they are in fact Israel, why are they claiming that the rain is happening in heaven? Where is the exegetical support for that? Yes, go ahead, Scott. I just wanted to point out that 
the martyrs of, from the, the uh, tribulation are receiving their immortal bodies at that time, right? Exactly right, the resurrection, right. That's exactly what I'm claiming. So the coming to life is the resurrection. So the idea then is they're not going to miss out on the resurrection that you and I had at the inception of the 70th week. Notice who is this talking about? Is this talking about all Christians? Notice what the text says. It says, then I saw a throne and they sat on them. And he says, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Notice he doesn't say, I saw all Christians, all believers in Jesus. It specifies those who had been put to death during that last seven years because of their testimony of Jesus and because they would not partake in the mark of the beast. Do you know that this is not talking about then those of us who are alive until the, the Lord returns, as Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians 4? It's referring to every single believer who came to faith in that last seven years and they were martyred. And what's being explained is that they are not going to miss being partakers of the kingdom. But where is that kingdom? Is it on the earth or is it in heaven? Well, it's on the earth. That's where it's going to be. They shall reign upon the earth. Now, if you notice, just five verses later in verse 9, I don't have it in front of me, but you'll notice this. It talks about the final battle of Gog and Magog. Can someone read Revelation 20, verse 9? What do the enemies of God do? This is after the millennial kingdom now. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth. Stop there, stop there. They came upon what? The broad plain on the earth. On the earth. <laughs> They're on the earth. Why would they come against us on the earth if we're in heaven, as the amillennialist says? So stop there, just there. I'm sorry, stop there. Yeah. Where is the exegetical support that we're reigning in heaven as amillennialists are claiming? Now, again, what's at stake? If you're amillennial, you're Israel. If you're, and you, therefore, have to do what Israel does. That's exactly what Bob is saying. If you're Israel, then you have to do what Israel does because they circumcised babies, you baptize babies. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. That's an ecclesiological issue. It's a church issue. All right? So if you're Israel, then is it not okay to have dominion like post-millennialists believe? Well, yes, you have to have dominion upon the earth. You have to take over the culture. You have to take over the politics. No. You have to take over the planet. Otherwise, Jesus can't return. That's post-millennialism. You're trying to create Israel. So whether you're amillennial or post-millennial, what I want you to see is you cannot read what the text is saying because the text does not say that we're going to reign in heaven. The reign is upon the earth, and it's after Jesus Christ returns. That's what I want you to see in this text. Yes, go just ahead. So I can just so I can understand, you're saying like post-millennialism is a different sort of Marxism? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying that they're, it's identical. What I'm saying is the similarity, Similar. Similar. What, what, one point of similarity that they have is that they try to build a kingdom by human works, by Christianizing the planet, by taking over aspects of culture. We're, Bob and I are reading a book right now called Invading Babylon that's written by post-millennialists. So in, remember in post, remember what the prefix means, post means that Jesus comes after you and I create the millennial kingdom. Premillennial, the pre-prefix, means Jesus Christ returns 
and brings about the millennial kingdom. So the question is, do you and I bring about the kingdom by our human efforts? Or is it going to be by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ alone who will subdue the enemies of God and bring about his kingdom? I think it's the latter, right? Um, let me give you another passage to consider for the post-millennial view. Again, I'm glad you asked this question because it's a good segue too. And I, does that help answer, by the way, the, the, the question, Paul? Um, turn your Bibles to Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Remember, in post-millennialism, they have to Christianize the planet. So the world is, by and large, going to be Christianized. And this is one of the things that Bob has been reacting against in that I think to some post-millennialists, they view Christianization of the planet as being Christendom, not necessarily having converts. Okay, why do I, why do I say that? Because what we're about is the church is never comprised of unbelievers. That's the primary difference between Israel of the Old Covenant and the church of the New Covenant. They're two different things. In other words, you could be an Israelite and never have saving faith, and you still, because you were part of an earthly kingdom bound by the Mosaic Covenant, you were bound to circumcision, Sabbath, food laws. You were bound to those things. But when you approach the New Covenant, the New Testament is comprised, the New Covenant community, the church, is only of believers. So when you and I are baptizing, we're not baptizing infants with the hope that one day maybe they'll become something. No, because that's not what the church is. The church is every single human being, man, woman, and child, that has come to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of the regeneration by the Spirit. So therefore, you have Israel is a mixed bag. There are some believers and there are a lot of unbelievers. But when it came to the church, it's only believers. It's only believers. They're two different animals in that sense. Okay? So look at what, if you're a post-millennialist, again, you believe you have to Christianize the planet. Well, let's look at Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Notice Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. So stop there. The, the broad way of destruction is the wide path, and many enter in through it. Now notice in verse 14, he says, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Does everyone see here that the vast majority are going to enter in the wide gate to destruction? The narrow gate is the one that few find. When does that ratio reverse? The post-millennialist is saying, well, at some point during the church age, that reverses. Why? Because you have to have a Christianized planet. So all of a sudden, no longer is Matthew 7, 13 through 14 valid. Jesus says, the vast majority enter in destruction. The post-millennialist says, one day the vast majority are going to come to faith. Well, wait a minute. Now we got ourselves a problem. Because Jesus says the vast majority enter into destruction, but you post-millennialists, Lance Walno, you false prophets of NAR, you're claiming that the vast majority are going to enter into the kingdom. How many know that you can't have the vast majority enter into destruction and the vast majority enter into life at the same time in the same relationship? Someone's wrong. What I'm saying is it's not the Lord Jesus Christ, 
it's the post-millennialist. So here would be a good idea. Let's have the same eschatology as the apostles did. If we have the same one that the apostles did, we should be in good shape. Where would we find the apostles' eschatology? Well, one place I think we see it is in Acts 1, verses 6 through 8. Let's turn there. Acts 1, verses 6 through 8. Bob had taught us this some probably years ago now um, in, in the book of Acts. Now remember as you're turning to Acts 1, 6 through 8, in the very opening verses of Acts 1, there's an explicit point made by Luke under the inspiration of the Spirit where he says that the disciples were with Christ for 40 days in his resurrected body. And what was the Lord Jesus teaching them about? The kingdom of God. So they got a course on the kingdom of God from the Messiah for 40 days. What was their conclusion after attending that graduate level class? Well, Acts 1, 6 through 8, it says, So when they had come together, they, this is the disciples, were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now stop there for just a moment. That's the same restoring. Notice in Joel 3, verse 1. At the end of the 70th week, what is Jesus going to do, the Messiah? when he, He's going to restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Well, that's what the disciples are asking. They're asking, is it now? Okay, so they're asking, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this is Jesus' response. Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jer- Jerusalem and all of Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. In other words, the disciples were not to know when the kingdom was coming, but Jesus didn't say, hey guys, where did you get the goofy idea that the kingdom was coming to Israel? It's incumbent upon the Lord Jesus Christ to correct them if they were an heir. Let me give you a passage in which Jesus states that he's on the hook for that. In John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus says, in my father's house there are many rooms, If it were not so, I would have told you. And what that means is if Jesus knew that we were believing in something that is a lie, it's incumbent upon him, the truth-telling God who cannot lie, to set us straight. The great news is there really is a place for us. There really is. In the same way, Jesus does not correct them. He merely says it's not for you to know the timing. That's the same milieu or realm you and I are in. We know that he's coming and that the restoration is coming, but we don't know when. That's what creates the doctrine of imminence. The 70th week will surely come, but when does it come? I don't know. Does it break forth tomorrow? Three weeks from now? Two months from now? A year? I don't know. They didn't know. You and I don't know. But what we do know is that the kingdom is coming to Israel. That's the point. So, dear ones, the establishment of Israel and the restoration of Israel is not a subsidiary issue. It is the core issue because that's our kingdom. If the Marxists wipe out Israel, then what's the point? Because the restoration of Israel is connected to the resurrection, the timing of the 70th week. God is a liar and all is at stake. That's what I'm asserting the battle's ultimately about. So with that, if you recall, last time I showed you from Colossians 2, 
from Ephesians 6, 11 through 12, and from Daniel 10, 13, that indeed demonic beings give wicked doctrines to human beings who then give them to other human beings. And we see that over and over. We cited the example. Do you remember in 1 Kings 22? Where in 1 Kings 22, you had that throne room scene where there was a demon who gave a lying spirit to the prophets of Ahab, the false prophets. Of course, Micaiah, the true prophet, he was telling the truth, but the false prophets weren't. And from that example, we saw that demonic doctrine was going from the throne room, from the demonic realm, and it was going to human beings. What I'm claiming is the same thing is happening in Marxism. Marxism is a false religion, but the ultimate beings behind it are not ultimately human, but demonic. Let me give you some evidence just from history. Again, I can't point to a biblical passage, so I'm here what I'm doing as I'm showing you general revelation as we look out the window. Do we see Marxism doing good things or bad things? I think it's obvious through general revelation that they're doing wicked things. Let me first begin with Karl Marx. I'm going to give you some quotes here. By the way, I'm indebted to Paul Kangor, his book, Devil and Karl Marx. Also another writer named John Stormer. John Stormer was a Republican senator who wrote a book called None Dare Call It Treason. If you want to understand how Marxism infiltrated the State Department of the United States, coming from a senator who saw it, if you want to know what McCarthyism was really about and how Joe McCarthy was right, if you want to know the history of how Marxism influenced the United States, it's an essential read. None Dare Call It Treason by John Stormer. He died when he was 91. The day he died, I was given that book by an airline friend. So again, I'm, I'm indebted to their books, but I think their research is solid. Karl Marx famously said, communism begins where atheism begins. All communist regimes end up persecuting believers. And again, they're not so picky as to the finer points of theology. They will simply kill you if you're not a follower of Karl Marx. The saying, thou shall have no other gods before Marx is true. And the body count in the 20th century alone proves it. Let me show you a, a little irony here. Nikolai Bakirin, does everyone hear of the, or has everyone here heard of the Russian newspaper Pravda? Pravda means truth in Russian. Ironically, of course, they get everything but the truth. But he said this, he says, a fight to the death must be declared upon religion. By the way, Nikolai Bakirin said this prior to him being murdered by Stalin in one of the purges in the 1930s. And that's one of the things you'll see is the Marxists always turn against each other because the thing that is worship for them is power. What they want more than all is the state uberalis above all and to be a ruler of that state is the highest good. So they will do anything. They will murder even each other for the sake of power. Uh, Richard Wormbrand, here's the famous Romanian pastor who was uh, very much abused by the communists for years in prison. In fact, he was in prison for over 1400, excuse me, 14 years behind the Iron Curtain. Listen to what Richard Wormbrand said as he was tortured. He said, I've seen communists whose faces while torturing believers shone with rapturous joy. They cried out while torturing the Christians. We are the devil, one torturer said. I thank God whom I don't believe that I've lived to this hour when I can express all the evil of my heart. That's the type of evil that communists did in the 20th century. Let me show you another quote. This is from Karl Marx's father, 
Karl Marx's father knew there was a screw loose in his son. He knew that. In fact, listen to what he said. This is from the book, Paul Kangor. He has some amazing quotes. The things that he gets into, I've never heard of in my life. For example, let me give you one instance. I think I mentioned this last time. Karl Marx had a friend. I forget his name. I could find it for you. But the man was kicked out of a seminary for his theological heresy. On Easter Sunday, I think it was, well, sometime in the later part of the 19th century, those two to mock Christianity rode in to a local German village to mock Jesus Christ and his triumphal entry. So what you have to realize is that Karl Marx was deliberately anti-Christian. In fact, he mocked hell and the fact that he would go to hell, and he talked more about hell than most left-wing pastors do today. And that's why, in fact, Paul Kangor talks about the book being The Devil and Karl Marx. This man openly mocked hell, the doctrines of the Bible. He was deliberately anti-Christian. Karl Marx's father said of him, he said, and since that heart, he's talking about his son. This is Heinrich Marx, the father of Karl Marx. And says, and since that heart is obviously animated and governed by a demon, not granted to all men, is that demon heavenly or Faustian? Um, how many here know who Faust is? Faust was a firm, famous German necromancer who famously sold his soul to the devil. They call that the Faustian bargain. Many of you have heard of that. His father was wondering what kind of evil being was within his son. Dear ones, over 100 million people were murdered in the 20th century alone. It makes the 20th century the most deadly century in all of human history. Let me um, ask you to do a little favor for me. This may seem somewhat self-serving because I like uh, firearms, etc. but I want everyone to watch a video if you get a chance. It's, it's on YouTube. It's called the AR-15, Why Everyone Should Own One. The reason you need to watch this isn't because I want you to buy an AR-15. I'm not pushing that. But I want you to think about this. Since the inception of firearms, what's the lie right now about AR-15s? I'm tying this to Marxism, so bear with me. The lie about the AR-15 in the United States is that it's a weapon of war. No one should have them except the military. This man does a brilliant job in showing that throughout the history of the world, from the 13th century onward, as soon as you had gunpowder, civilians have always had the equal to or the better firearms than did the military. And he goes example after example after example after example. All the way through history, do you know when it reverses, where finally the citizens can't have as good a firearm as the military? Under Joseph Stalin and under Mao. And Hitler. And Hitler. Finally, the people are producing. By the way, you know how many weapons the AK-47, the most prolific assault rifle, was, per, was made? It was the AK-47 by the Soviets and by the Chinese. Over 100 million of them were made, and yet not one civilian could own them. Do you know how many civilians died? 100 million. 100 million. 100 million people were butchered and slaughtered by Marxists as they produced 100 million weapons that they couldn't own. You think about the irony that only those in the government, the Marxist government, uber allis who are God, only they can have them. What's the battle in America really about? What's that YouTube? It's called, uh, I, I believe, I, I wrote down AR-15, why everyone should own them. It's actually put out, I'm kind of into the sport of shooting, like um, is target shooting and doing it rapidly. Larry is another fellow from Wisconsin. He's into that, tar that sport as a tar uh, 
the shooting is a sport. This is a sport put out by Lucas Arms. He's a, he's a professional shooter, so he does target shooting with pistols. And uh, this guy happens to have a great message where he shows that, ironically, it's the civilians of the 20th century in Mao and Stalin's government that produced 100 million of these that could never own a single one of them, and yet 100 million of them died. Why am I showing you this? I'm showing you this because human beings are made in the image of God, and a biblical coherent worldview says the role of government is to restrain evil to protect humans. Marxist government always does evil, and that's why we should fight against it with all we have. We, if, let's say Jehovah Witnesses took over the United States and they said Jesus isn't God, we would fight that. Marxism is an evil religion. It's, it's, yes, it's political, but it's primarily a religion. But it's a religion in which the masses die. And every single Christian should have a desire to see it not thrive in the United States or around the world. We should stand against it. We should speak against it because it is an evil again, that has murdered more human beings than any other religion on the planet. In October 7th of 2023, what I'll lay out to you next time is that the reason Israel was attacked wasn't necessarily because of Islam alone. It was primarily because of Marxism. And I'll be proving that to you. The Marxists want Israel to be completely eradicated. And therefore, there's another reason for us to speak up and say, hey, this is evil. Again, let me just have you thinking in your mind, why is all anti-Semitism coming from Harvard, but not Hillsdale? Because the Marxists run Harvard, but they don't run Hillsdale. That's where it's coming from. The hatred of Israel is primarily a Marxist issue in the United States today. And again, we should stand against it with everything we have. Well, with that, I'll close in prayer. Just like a, uh, yes, I'm sorry, Rich. He says, they who cling to their gods and guns. Yes. Barack Obama, the great Marxist. Absolutely, and he'll never tell you. He's running the country right now. Right, he'll never tell you what the Marxists did in the 20th century when they alone had the firearms. That's the irony. Yeah, very true. Uh, yes, O'Brien. Real quick, Biden has made the statement that if the American people rise up, we're going to need uh, F-14s and... Uh, Abram t or uh, uh, M1 tanks. So. Right, they subjugate you and then they mock you as if, yeah, I know, it's a very troubling thing. Well, we'll bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your truth. We thank you for scripture. We do pray, Lord, again, that you'd equip us to be salt and light in this decaying culture, that you'd put the gospel upon our lips, boldness in our heart. Give us a love for our enemies. We're called to love even those who hate you, hate the gospel, and hate us. We pray that you give us the supernatural love and opportunity to proclaim the gospel, that through faith alone and Christ alone, people can have the forgiveness of sins. We do ask you, Lord, that you'd help us, protect us, keep us, enable us to persevere until the day that you come to bring your glorious kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.